This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Silver by Moist. I had to listen to it a few times to sort of remember why I liked it. I like the guitar playing on this record a lot. He was like the David Hasselhoff of America. You can tell that this album was a heavy influence on me. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are on episode 134. It's our third season, and it's your pick this week. Your selection for the album we're going to review. Why don't you, uh, why don't you introduce... I usually do the introductions. Why don't you do the introduction on this particular album? Tell everybody what you picked. Oh, I'm not prepared for this. Uh, what do I do? Uh, I picked a band called Moist, which, uh, keeping with our theme of bands who picked unfortunate names in the 90s um, <laughs> prior to uh, prior to being aware of what Google was going to that Google was going to exist, because if you go on, even if you go on something like Spotify right now, and you look for Moist. There's like five other bands called Moist, and yeah, <laughs> it's a mess. So, yeah, I, p- I picked uh, Moist debut album, Silver, and this is a band that I discovered live. Uh, really? I was thinking about it. Yeah, the, thinking about it, there's not a lot of bands that, maybe a handful, that I saw live the first, you know, my first exposure was live, and then went out, got the record, and, and uh, enjoyed both sides of the band. It's kind of usually the other way around for me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, even the uh, um, to the detriment of the band when I see them live, I found there's some bands I really like a lot on record, and then when I see them live, it kind of kills it for me. But yeah, I saw them live uh, on tour for this record. I think uh, right when it came out um, at a, like a radio station kind of festival thing with a bunch of other '90s bands. I'm guessing that was in Cleveland. It was. I don't remember the name of the event, but I think Green Day headlined it. Collective Soul was on it. I think there was a. Do you remember a '90s or like it might have been Russian? You know what I'm talking about? A band? Yeah, they had like a, they were like a one-hit wonder band. I think they were Russian. The Red Elvises? No, uh, I don't Not know. Quirky Park? Not either. Quirky Park? I I don't know. Tattoo? A really stupid name too. Pussy Riot? No. I'm anyway, to get the oh, Google uh, out. oh, almost tip my tongue. It was like three words. For, for Fury, I think they have Fury in the name. Fury? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the Google out, and I'm gonna try to figure this one out because. Uh, God, it's killing me. Maybe they weren't Russian. Oh God! Well, now. Then, uh. Well, I, I mean, they were, they were not American. I know that. Well, there's a lot of bands that are not American. Fury. Okay. Well, what's the point? Why are you getting into a Russian '90s? No, I don't know. I was just trying to think of some of the other bands I saw. Oh, okay. That we're at that show, uh, but I just, I just it dawned on me that that band playing it. I thought it would have been fun to remember the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, saw them like liked Moist a lot. Um, went out, got the record, and uh, followed their career for the next couple records. And here we are. Well, I'm guessing that was probably a WMMS show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think they were. Uh, yeah, they were getting the the, the single uh, push. Yeah, that was the first single the off, first of, single, uh, yeah, off that, of this record. That was being played. Yeah, I'm gonna say that uh, it was a it was. Would they call them Buzzard Fest? Possibly, because I know Buzzard Fest was 
WMMS The Buzzard. Yeah, it was called it was The Buzzard Fest. Um, in 94, according to the Wikipedia, it was at the Nautica stage. It included sets from Collective Soul, Junk House, Fury in the Slaughterhouse. There it is. I just found it, too. Uh, but it was cut short after turning into a rock and bottle-throwing melee. Cleveland police wearing riot gear were called in just as headliner Green Day took stage. WMS scheduled a second Green Day performance two months later at the Blossom right. Music Center for $5 a ticket. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. So, yeah, yeah we we kind of ducked out when things were getting funky. Like, before Green Day played, it was like... Because I think mm-hmm. it was a free show. Anytime you have a free show, it's... You're asking for trouble. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, it had been going on all day, and people just kept showing up and showing up. So we were starting to, and we weren't huge Green Day fans at the time, so we were sort of uh, seeing things getting kind of getting kind of grim. So we ducked out, and I think literally right after we left, we got Harry. Because I think we heard about it on, like, on the radio on the way home. Um, Fury and the Slaughterhouse are from Germany. And they were touring for their first U.S. release, which was called Mono. Originally released in 1993, but then re-released in the United States in 1994. And it looks like that was their, one, two, three, fourth album overall. And they have uh, been putting out albums up until 2006. So, Fury and the Slaughterhouse. Maybe we'll get to them at some point. Yeah, maybe. Uh, They have like 6,000 records. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about Fury and the Slaughterhouse, Jay. We're here to talk about Moist. We are. And we should talk about the history of the band. History of the band. So as you mentioned, uh, this album came out, Silver came out in 1994. However, the band actually formed in 1992 in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada by Mark McAway on guitar, Jeff Pierce on bass, Kevin Young on keyboards and piano david usher on vocals and paul wilcox on drums they released a self-titled cassette themselves in 1983 which got them signed uh which not signed sorry in 94 they self-released silver that got them signed to emi music canada then they released in 1996 creature on emi in 1998 david usher released his first solo album little songs the following year, June of 1999, they released uh, their final album, Mercedes Five and Dime. The band toured throughout 2000 and then broke up. And then David Usher has gone on to release seven solo albums between 2001 and 2012. That is the history of Moist. Uh, if you have a, an album that you'd like to suggest, head on over to our request review page over at digmeout.com podcast.com as of the recording of this album jay 15 spots have been eaten up only 10 are left for 2013 so we we've already gotten past the halfway point so uh if you if you want to get yours in get it in now because uh, they're going fast so one of the other bands was god's child oh yeah yeah Yeah, i think you've given me that album to check out and i have not because i'm waiting for you to suggest it Facebook feedback. We did get some Facebook feedback on this record. I'm going to mess up her last name, but Kim Aub, or Aubby, uh, chimed in and said, One of my favorite albums, the band managed to keep every song so different, one to the next, but all sound very moist-like. I still listen to it very often, and it still sounds great. So, Jay, 
You suggested this mm -hmm. album. That means I go first. You so do. I went I went on a little bit of a journey with this record because I, I was familiar with them from back in the 90s as well. Uh, I, I heard the single push either on the radio or we might have even been playing it at the radio station that we worked at. And I remember liking this band throughout all three of their albums. I think I remember liking Creature the most, but mm -hmm. I did like this album quite a bit. But they were never a band I was like in love with. I just listened to the albums, enjoyed them, and that was that. But I don't think I've listened to them probably since Mercedes 5 and Dime came out. I listened to that first David Usher album, and I wasn't terribly taken with it. And I don't think I've checked out anything uh, very extensively past that. Maybe some sampling on you know, Spotify or, or Last FM or something like that, but I've never really uh, gotten into it too heavy. Uh, so when I went back to this record, it was interesting because I really hadn't listened to, I, re I didn't really even remember a lot of it other than the two or three singles that came out, which were, the singles for this were um, Push, that was the lead single, Silver, and then Believe Me was the third single that was released. And in going back... I was kind of down on it at first. Uh, the thing that I noticed that, that bothered me was not the music, although there's I have some gripes about that, but uh, his vocal kind of got a little repetitive. And what I mean by that is um, from song to song, he does some variants, but within songs, I found a lot of the times he was singing like basically the same note throughout the song. He would just kind of hang on one particular note and ride that note throughout the verse. He might change his phrasing or cadence up a little bit, but it was basically one note singing during a verse or during a chorus. And a lot of times he would get like a counter melody from uh, someone else in the band. I guess it was, uh, must have been the guitar player or maybe the bass player or the keyboard player. Somebody else was throwing in a counter melody here or there. That works. I can believe me, there's a nice counter melody in that chorus of that song. But I was really sort of... I don't know, I was a little let down at first going back and listening to the record. I listened to it some more, and I think the thing that sort of boosted it back up for me was how well they integrate the piano and organ uh, into the most of the songs. I think Kevin Young is sort of the secret weapon in this band because mm. for the most part, there's a few tracks where he goes a little overboard, but for the most part, I feel like his addition, especially of the organ adds a really nice flavor that bands in 1994 were not adding to mm -hmm. their song to their albums because you could take that away and this would be a second generation sort of grunge band in the vein of a collective soul or a gin blossoms pretty simply you could, you could lump mm -hmm. them in but when you add that little element of the keyboard player that really brings a little bit something special to it now saying that some of them got a little out of control. Do you know what I'm talking about? From a piano standpoint? From a piano standpoint. Yeah. Um, they're, love. Yeah. And I like the concept of what's going on in that song. It just, I think it should have been a, like a short little piece to it. And it goes on a little too long for me.
other thing that, and this is more towards the back of the album, is that when you get to picture Elvis and Machine Punch Through, more so in the chorus of Machine Punch Through, the guitars turned into like funk guitars, especially on Picture Elvis. Now, you could say, okay, that that Picture Elvis kind of has a a Screamadelica Primal Scream kind of feel to it. You know, we just talked about Primal Scream a couple episodes ago, but we talked about their their Rolling Stones Faces album, not their Screamadelica album. Those songs kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, but the first half of this album, the, I mean, the first five songs, I think, are all really strong. You open with a great single and push. Just a catchy rock radio, good chorus, pop rock single. I mean, it's just, it's undeniable. Um, Believe Me has that nice build with the chorus and going to Kill For You. There's a really cool interplay between the guitar and the piano during the verse. And I think that's where, like, that's where Kevin Young and um, Mark McAway really, like, show off the songwriting. Because it's it's a hard thing to do to, to integrate piano into a band like this and make it sound seamless. And that's a really good example of doing it well. Which song? Silver? No, Kill For You. There's the, okay. the piano and the guitar, like, bounce back and forth. Yeah during the verses then it's really cool Silver was definitely one where, like, I had to listen to it a few times to sort of remember why I liked it. And it's really, it's the chorus of that song that makes it for me. Because it almost sounds like a slowed down push, if you're to analyze that song. And then Freaky Be Beautiful, it's just got a nice, different feel to it. It's got a bounce driven by the piano that's real nice. Um but after that, there's really only a couple songs that I, I want to listen to again. Into Everything is is kind of a cool, different take on what their sound is. And then um, if you kind of trim some of the piano from This Shrieking Love, I think that's a cool song, but it's, it's a little overboard. So I'm at like half this album I think is really strong, and I really liked it, and I was, I was glad going back to listen to it. But... The wart showed a little bit more this time around than maybe that when I was listening to it back in 1994 or 95. Um, and I think that they streamlined a lot of this going into Creature, their, their second full length. And I think they had a little bit more, I think there was more focus on the guitars that time around. I have to mm-hmm. go back and listen to it again. Um, but there was, I don't remember a, a this shrieking love kind of piano part in any song on that record you might correct me if i'm wrong i don't know if you've gone back and listened to that so so yeah i was it was a journey it was a roller coaster i ended up appreciating this record more as i was wrapping up my listening to it than when i started so how was it going back for you it was similar um in that you know when i first put it back on 
I haven't listened to it in she's a decade at least. Uh, put it back on. Uh, I wasn't. It didn't quite connect with me the first couple times. You know, I, I was thrown a little bit by, you know, the realities of the production, which I think the sounds are there, but you know, it's kind of mastered low and it's a little bright, and you know, so that kind of took me a little bit. And it didn't have that uh, magic that I remembered. You know, when I when I first got into the band, saw them live, got into the record. You know, sometimes it just there are certain records that just they take on a, this, like, uh, I don't know, you just have a feeling about them. You know what I mean? When you listen to them, mm-hmm. when you think about the band and the song, it just, there's a certain kind of feeling you get. And uh, I didn't get that feeling at first, you know, going back and listening to the record. So it was a little, just felt a little bit, you know, hollow. As I dug into it a little bit more to try to, you know, figure out what I liked about this band so much and, you know, see what, what was working and what made them unique. It started to reconnect with me a lot you know, after, you know, sort of once I got in there, it started to reconnect with me again and I started to get into it again more and more and more and found myself just kind of, I don't know, just going back to a comfortable place. I don't know if it's just so different than what music sounds like right now or what I listen to right now. I'm not quite sure what it was, but one of the things that, that I did remember liking about them at the time that I think was even more obvious now was that that this band uh, had a very i think it had a very heavy like 80s pop influence on them um i think it comes through with the vocal some of the vocal delivery um phrasing kind of overall style and just the fact that there's so much keyboard and piano in here now you don't hear it as much on like a song like push and some of the things that are you know definitely a little bit like you know, darker or grungy influence, but songs like Freaky Be Beautiful, even The Shrieking Love, even Picture Elvis, stuff where it kind of has a little bit more pop feel to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of start to hear like almost like a Duran Duran kind of undertone to some of this stuff, especially if you've ever heard Duran Duran live, you know, where it's it's more it's more of a band sound. Right. It kind of just... It, that that part about it, I, I sort of re, I I, I kind of realized it at the time when I heard the record, but it's like I said, it's more even more clear to me now that you know the combination here that I like is that they are they're doing something that a lot of bands. I, I wish more bands did this. They're they're essentially just a pop band, but they're really a band. Um, and they even and th- themselves as they progress in their you know career, the next couple albums, they became less of a band, meaning. The record sounded less like four guys getting in a room or five guys getting in a room and just playing off each other. You know what I mean? You write, uh, I have an idea, you play something, I play off of that, and we organically just build something as, you know, five instruments. And that's how we we hone that, we practice that, when we record it that way. Um, You know, as they progress in their career, they, you know, they started to do more things with loops and layering things and, they became less of a. They put less time into figuring out like a, like a song like, um, well, Push does this where you know the, the guitar. There's a guitar intro that's kind of like serves as a riff, mm-hmm. and then when they get to the verse, that they keep playing that riff, but they take that riff and they split it in two, and the piano plays half the riff and the guitar plays half the riff, so it kind of gets this cool like, back and forth, but then at least you know, room for the vocal. 
Um, you know, that takes people playing together to figure that out. And I feel like as the band progressed, and I think a lot of bands are like this now, where especially with if they're trying to do something pop oriented, they tend to kind of build songs in the studio or build songs around layers as opposed to, you know, the dynamic of a couple people, you know, pulling and pushing apart an idea uh, around and, and trying to find space and really presenting it as a rock band. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, you know, did hold up for me that I, that kind of, you know, still recognize that about the band and appreciate that, you know, I've always been a fan of uh, the first um, killers album for that reason is that, you know, it's, it's a pop record. It's a completely hundred percent pop record radio, oh, record, yeah. but, oh, but yeah. it sounds like a band. It sounds like, you know, four guys writing music together. You know, that's another case of like, now that band just sounds like the singer goes in the studio with a bunch of producers and you know what I mean? Like there's no real drums. There's barely any guitar. It's just, you know, it, they've kind of lost that, that, that element of being a live band. And, and the, and this record feels most like that couple, couple things touch on a couple things you mentioned. You're right. The piano is, is what makes this special without the piano. I'm not quite sure you have you know, anything that remarkable, um, but you do. And it's a big part of the band. And, um, kind of building off what you said on how hard it is to do. It, it's very difficult to add piano to rock music and have it not go completely soft or have it completely take over the song. Right. Um, it is not, you know, I, I've, I've tried to play with this formula myself and it, it's a very delicate balance of like all of a sudden, you know, you start sounding like, it starts to sound like a meatloaf song real fast, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and that's why um, I think we're both big fans of Sean Smith because he's so seamlessly able to integrate piano and organ and stuff into songs but not make them sound cheesy. Like mm-hmm. he's able to find a way to make it sound dramatic and not melodramatic. Mm-hmm. To make it sound soulful but not bluesy or R&B-ish and sound like he's paying homage to those influences, but not overdoing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the same thing that goes on with Moist, where there, you know, there's a history of piano and organ being used throughout rock music. I mean, Deep Purple made their whole career off of an organ, essentially. So it's not unusual that they did that. It's just they were able to do it in a way that sounds real tasteful, and yeah. other bands do it, and they, it sounds like you have, you know, John Tesh, playing on top of a rock band, and that's when it sounds really bad. Right. For people who remember what John Tesh sounded like playing <laughs> keyboards. I forgot I'm, that guy had a music career. Yeah, it was, he had, a, he had like... Yeah. A, he, he, was, he was like the David Hasselhoff of America. Yeah, he was big for a moment there. That was yeah. weird. Well, that's when um, Entertainment Tonight was the launching pad for many careers. That's true. You know, Lisa Gibson. Back John in the Tesh. 90s. Uh-huh. <laughs> this shrieking love, I think a little context on that is that uh, it is it is over the top, but that's a I think that's a live song. I rem- that's one of the songs I specifically remember them playing live because they just turned it into like a you know a jam, and it sounds like that basically on the record where they just mm-hmm. are going off and right you now and having fun. And you can't forget that this is a demo that they essentially wrote you know wrote and recorded. Without any influence of a, ra- a record label, right? You know, they they made this album and then a record label picked it up and released it, which is kind of, in fact, similar. You know, that's not that's not an unusual story in the '90s of bands 
making an album, maybe getting it remixed by a label, but it was a cheap way for a, for a label to put out an album and see something, see if something hits without actually having to invest the money to record the album. Right. From a money standpoint, it makes sense to go with a band that's already bothered to make the record instead of just, de- you know, throwing out three or four demos. They've got a finished product and then all you have to do is slap your, you know, Sony records or, or, um, in this case, uh, EMI. And, uh, you haven't invested as much, you're gonna, you don't have as much to lose. I like the guitar playing on this record a lot. I, I like the diversity of it. He does, he does get into some funk things here and there, but it's so fleeting that, and there's so much other variety and some other styles that he plays on this record. I mean, um, I think, believe me, especially the chorus, I mean, that, that borders on Oasis territory, but then mm-hmm. a song like uh, Breaker Down. You know, the intro riff to that, and even the verse riffs to that sound a lot like Pearl Jam. Um, at least their first record, Pearl Jam. Which these guys are probably, I mean, if they're in Vancouver, Seattle's not that far from there. Right. So There's a definite heavily, heavily Seattle influence on a lot of this record. Um, it's not over the top. It's much more refined. You know, they're not doing the Soundgarden, Alice in Chains side of it. It's a bit more... Like you said, first album Pearl Jam, where it's mm-hmm. sort of riff oriented and and uh, been more song oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have liked to have heard them maybe let loose a little bit more from time to time. It's pretty restrained for the most part throughout the record. Um, his vocal stays; it's kind of uh, a little one notish for me. And there's very few times where he does anything outside of his comfort range uh, yeah. with his vocal. Yeah, and his vocal didn't really, on a revisit, I guess I didn't feel one way or another about it. It didn't really, I wasn't annoyed by it as much as I thought I might be, but I also wasn't sort of as impressed with it or right. you know, sort of moved by it as much as I probably was, you know, 20 years ago or whenever this came out. I Machine Punch 3 is my favorite song on this record, and I think hmm. it's it's got a couple moments in there that really kind of still send a little... It boost chills up my my arms.
the line when the drums come in at the intro. What was it? Your fucking pistol's not so dangerous. And then there's another line later on. I can't remember what it was, but um, there's just a couple moments in there where it's like, you know, just things come together, right? And it has that little like, oh, wow, that was really cool. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the synth in that mm-hmm. song and just the bass line. And the guitar is very restrained in that song. I mean, it's the one where he pulls back the most on guitar and just lets lets that synth sound and that bass that bass line just really carry a lot of the song and then just kind of comes in on those choruses. And oh, I, it was one of my favorites at the time and it still, I think, holds up pretty well. Uh, the last thing I think I realized about this record is that is how much of an influence it was on me as a musician, particularly low, low, low. I don't know if you know this, but that song inspired me to write uh, one of our songs. Really? And, and I went back and a beat it with the song. And I mean, you won't like it's not like there's you know notes lifted or anything, but they're very much in a ballpark. Like if you a beat the two, they sound very sort of you can tell how you can tell that this album was a heavy influence on me and what i was trying to do and i think a lot of that came through in terms of uh, our first record which uh i don't think it was obvious to me at the time but revisiting it I, there was a lot of little things here and there that i picked up from listening to this record that uh, i carried through at least in the early version of our band and the songs we wrote at that time which would have been probably you know what within five years of when this came out mm-hmm. when that stuff was written and developed so i definitely remember you being a big big fan of this back in college edison creature were two albums honestly i mean i think this album and um mother low bone inspired me to learn how to play piano which you know because at that point i'd never heard i mean I, you hear keyboard obviously an organ but p just straight piano i had never heard that in a in a 90s kind of format right and when i heard those two bands do it and was like oh well you can do that it inspired me to sort of teach myself how to play and um kind of became a part of our the early part of our band um because of this i mean i can't play like this guy can but um it definitely inspired me to to at least uh you know try to figure something out and make it an element of of what we were doing the the song low 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 that our song sound the song we had was called making sound ah if people are ambitious and they want to go on Spotify and search for the Stepford Five making sound, you can compare the two. There you go. That's your homework for this episode. I was going to say my favorite track is probably Believe Me. Um, it reminds me a lot of later Catherine Wheel. Mm, yeah. Specifically a song called Goodbye on the Adam and Eve album, which would come out three years later.
has that sort of uh, majestic feel that, that that goodbye has in the chorus. Well, I um, said Oasis, so it definitely has that like British yeah. you know, sort of shoegazy-ish pop thing. So where are you at with uh, overall? Are you at a Worthy Album, Better EP, or Decent Single? I, I have to go with Worthy Album. I mean, even the, the moments on this that are a little bit you know, cringe-inducing. I still like them just because they're they're so unique because of the the element of the the piano. You know, sometimes the, there's a couple points on here where the piano is the part where you're kind of like, eh, I don't know. But then again, you're, you know, I come right back to say like, nobody else was doing anything like this or has done anything specifically like this in terms of this combination of stuff. So I kind of appreciate it still from that standpoint. And there's you know, generally half the songs in here I still can get into. So I think it's worth the album. I'm not quite there. I'm at an EP. I'm at like six to seven songs, depending on my mood. Like I said, the, the back half of the album doesn't necessarily work as well for me as the first half. And uh, I think this is a band that definitely got better on their second album. I don't remember Mercedes Five and Dime that well. I think it sounded a lot like a David Usher solo record from what I recall. Yeah. Like you mentioned, like the drum loops and the more the songs more focused on him than on the rest of yeah. the band. Uh, but it's I think Creature more. was still in that band mode yeah it's a good transition between the two sounds and you know the third record's not bad it's just not as it's not as interesting it's a little bit more produced and all right well that is our review of moist and their debut album silver if you agree or disagree uh feel free to leave us some comments on this episode and of course if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes, and if you want to suggest an album, head on over to uh, digmeoutpodcast.com, request a review page, and uh, find out how you can request an album for us to review. That is it for Jay. I'm Tim, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Too to feel face pressed to the glass. Please don't ask one more breath for one more.